Federal authorities say the man who attacked the House Speaker's husband also wanted to break Nancy Pelosi's kneecaps. The lead starts right now. Federal charges just filed against the man accused of attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer. The suspect's shocking intentions revealed in court documents. And only eight days left before the midterm elections. Why Republicans have growing confidence in key battleground races. Plus, you've heard of price gouging for gas, but what about for water? It's almost bankrupting some cities and it could cost you at the grocery store. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Brianna Keeler in for Jake Tapper, and we begin with new details about the horrifying attack against Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The Justice Department has now charged David DePap with one federal count of assault against an immediate family member of a U.S. official and one count of attempted kidnapping. Prosecutors say DePap knocked out Paul Pelosi with a blow to the head right in front of police. According to the complaint, officers found a roll of tape rope, a second hammer, gloves, and zip ties at the crime scene. Perhaps even more chilling, prosecutors say DePap later told police about his intentions. Quote, DePap stated that he was going to hold Nancy hostage and talk to her. If Nancy were to tell DePap the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. DePap was certain that Nancy would not have told the truth. He is also expected to be charged with multiple state felonies. That's a list that could potentially include attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and other felonies. Multiple sources telling CNN that investigators interviewed Mr. Pelosi this weekend at the hospital, and he was able to provide details of the attack. CNN's Josh Campbell has the latest details on these charges against the alleged attacker. Paul Pelosi still in intensive care following surgery after a violent attack at his home Friday that left him with a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and his hands. The suspect in the attack, 42-year-old David DePap, now charged with federal crimes, assault and attempted kidnapping after he allegedly broke into the Pelosi San Francisco home through a back door, went to the bedroom and confronted Pelosi, shouting, where's Nancy, according to law enforcement. According to the federal criminal complaint, DePap stated that he was going to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and talk to her. If she were to tell DePap the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. DePap also attempted to tie Paul Pelosi up before the assault. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott discredited conspiracy theories the two knew each other before the break-in. There is absolutely no evidence that Mr. Pelosi knew this man. As a matter of fact, the evidence indicates the exact opposite. The two struggled over a hammer, according to law enforcement. And when police arrived, DePap pulled the hammer away from Pelosi, then violently attacked him before police were able to tackle and disarm him. DePap was arrested at the scene. He brought the hammer used in the attack and was carrying duct tape and zip ties, according to law enforcement and sources familiar with the investigation. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, along with her security detail, was in Washington at the time. She returned to San Francisco Friday and has been visiting her husband at the hospital. The attack at around 2.30 a.m. early Friday morning at the Pelosi residence in San Francisco occurred just as police arrived in response to a 911 call placed by Paul Pelosi. There was a 911 call made and that's how we got there and, and, and thank goodness that there was a 911 call made. Radio traffic picked up the call for assistance at the Pelosi residence. Special call, special call medic 66, location... DePap, still hospitalized, is expected to be arraigned Tuesday. He still faces state charges that include attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, burglary, elder abuse, and other felonies. 
Condemnation of the attack and the rising violent political rhetoric now taking center stage. Elected officials have a hard enough job as it is. And, you know, the fact that people's families are being put at risk, it's wrong and it needs to stop. We need some civility here. And I just, it's pathetic in my, in my view. What does it take? Does it take somebody being murdered? It, of course, makes anyone um, who is in political leadership uh, take a step back and to question um, not only your own safety and the safety of your family, but where we are at in our nation's history. And Brianna, we've been reporting on the suspect's social media footprint, how it's littered with far-right conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, about COVID vaccines, about the January 6th insurrection. But we're now getting new information about the alleged motivation. According to this new FBI criminal complaint, the suspect told law enforcement that he wanted to break the House Speaker's kneecaps so that she could be wheeled into Congress, quote, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to their actions. Truly disturbing, disgusting allegations, Brianna. Certainly are. Josh Campbell, live for us in San Francisco. Thank you for that. Let's discuss this now with former assistant U.S. attorney Ellie Honig and former U.S. Capitol Police Chief Terry Gaynor. Ellie, just walk us through these federal charges and how prosecutors will use some of those disturbing details in the complaint as they build their case. Yeah, Brianna, so there are two different federal charges here. There's assault and then attempted kidnapping of an immediate family member of a federal official. Those are punishable by maximum of 30 and 20 years, respectively. What makes these charges federal is that the motive goes to the work, the official work of the federal official. And if you look at the evidence here, DOJ lays out in the complaint an overwhelming case that the motivation for this attack was Nancy Pelosi, was her political position, and was her political stances on the issues. And it's important to note, Bray, I just want to make this point. It is perfectly okay, legal, constitutional in our system to have both federal charges and state charges relating to the same conduct. I do think we will see that here. That is not double jeopardy. So I think we're going to see this individual being prosecuted both federally and in the state. And so you heard prosecutors there writing in their complaint that DePap told them he believed attacking and wounding Nancy Pelosi would, quote, show other members of Congress that there were consequences to their actions. Obviously, that sounds like a, a political motive. Under federal law, could that be seen as an act of domestic terrorism? So that evidence is going to be powerful proof as to the charges that we've seen about the assault and the attempted kidnapping. It shows clearly that his intent here was to go to the politics of it. Domestic terrorism is such an odd feature of our federal laws because the law defines domestic terrorism. There's a definition that says any violent attack that's intended to sway or intimidate political positioning. However, there's no crime attached to it. The definition just sort of hangs out there in the, neither, in the netherworld with no crime attached. Now, there have been legislative proposals to try to make domestic terrorism a crime, including one from Senator Durbin, but they've never gotten enough bipartisan support. So that's just not a crime that's on the federal books. Chief, for you, what issues does this raise about how officials and their families need to be protected? Well, the U.S. Capitol Police and their partners, whether it's the FBI or the Secret Service, will all be deeply examining how this occurred, the Capitol Police in particular, responsible for the protection of uh, Speaker Pelosi. And there's a lot of unanswered questions, at least publicly, about how us, all this unfolded. But you have to realize that uh, providing 24-7 security to uh, family members, A, is not within the jurisdiction of the Capitol Police or permitted, uh, absent specific threats, and it requires a substantial expansion of the size of the Capitol Police, 
much like we recommended after uh, the group that was brought in, I was part of, of the January 6th. So there would need to be a lot more people. And in the meantime, great cooperation between agencies like the San Francisco police, the Secret Service, the FBI, and the Capitol Police. It, I think the Capitol Police is trying to do everything they can. It, is it doable to protect these folks who need to be protected? Well, with any number of people, it's doable, but what we're always in the prevention business. So the elected officials who are saying nothing or mocking this thing or making it uh, belittling it uh, really have a duty to intervene. They're on government payroll. The former president is on government payroll. You know, so for them not to really get very active and say, stop this, don't do this, it's going to make everybody's job a lot harder. And I heard Josh say before, this offender consumed a lot of this hate and false information. We need to take a look at who's feeding him or who's feeding the others and hold them responsible, too. That's a very good point. Terry Gaynor, Ellie Honig, thank you so much to both of you. Elon Musk, new owner of Twitter, has deleted a weekend tweet that boosted a baseless fringe conspiracy theory, but not before it racked up some 28,000 retweets and 100,000 likes. CNN's Donio Sullivan is joining us live now to discuss how these kinds of theories are spreading. Donio, you heard Chief uh, Gaynor there talking about some of these. He's, he, Elon Musk, is not alone in tweeting these baseless conspiracies out, but he might be the only one doing it as the owner of an information platform. Yeah, Brianna, I mean, the sad reality in this country at the moment is anytime there is a major uh, news event, whether it be a school shooting um, or an attack on the spouse of the Speaker of the House, um, people immediately start spinning it for their own ends, um, calling it a false flag or whatever else, uh, despite, of course, there being an abundance of evidence to the contrary. this normally happens, you know, sometimes it happens on, on fringe uh, social media. Sometimes it's pushed by the kind of regular suspects of people who normally peddle in conspiracy theories. Uh, but then this weekend we saw the new owner of Twitter uh, tweet directly out a conspiracy theory. I want to show you his tweet. It was actually in response uh, to a message from Hillary Clinton, uh, who was condemning that attack on Pelosi. And then Musk tweets, uh, there is a tiny possibility there might be more to this story than meets the eye. And we're blurring out what he actually tweeted because it was nonsense. Uh, but it was a conspiracy theory about the Pelosi attack. Funny enough, from a website that claimed back in 2016 that Hillary Clinton had died. Uh, that same website claiming uh, that the person on the campaign trail in 2016 uh, was actually a Clinton body double. Look, this is all happening, of course, Brianna, as we're in the midst of the midterm elections. Millions of Americans have already voted and there are people working at Twitter who are trying to fight misinformation about the midterms. And yet we have the owner of the company tweeting conspiracy theories. And deleting it. I mean, it's not like that erases the damage, Tony. No. And I mean, look, if a news organization makes a mistake, we correct it. Um, Musk just deleted that last night, but it went to 112 million of his followers and no sign of a correction. All right. Donio Sullivan in New York. Thank you for that. Next, what's behind more Republicans not calling out these conspiracy theories related to the Pelosi attack, plus 21 million votes before Election Day and brand new polls showing extremely tight margins in key battleground races. Also ahead, that horrific crowd surge in South Korea that killed more than 150 people. Now a U.S. congressman says his niece was among the victims.
Republicans are riding a wave of optimism in the final days of the fall campaign, even eyeing seats deep into Democratic territory. Democrats are turning to former President Barack Obama, hoping to avoid the prospect of a bruising election day. Obama delivering his pointed closing argument in three key battleground states. And as CNN's Jessica Dean reports, former President Trump is also gearing up for his own midterm rally tour in the closing days of the campaign. The race to the finish is on. You got to get out and vote. With just eight days remaining until Election Day, Republicans believe they have history and momentum on their side. This is our year. The, The Democrats can't run on anything they've done. People don't like what they've done. With the balance of power in Congress at stake, new polling from the New York Times and Siena College focused on four key races that could determine Senate control. The survey finding no clear winner in the Nevada race between Democratic incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto and Republican Adam Laxalt. And no clear leader in Georgia, where Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock is facing off against Herschel Walker. In Arizona, the poll shows incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly edging out Republican Blake Masters 51 to 45 percent. And in Pennsylvania, Democratic nominee John Fetterman holding a slight lead over Republican Mehmet Oz with 49 percent support to Oz's 44%. You go out and what? Both parties bringing in their closers as we near election day. Just about every Republican politician seems obsessed with two things. Owning the libs and, and getting Donald Trump's approval. That's their agenda. It's not long. It's not complicated. And at least to me, it's not very inspiring. Former President Barack Obama stumped for Democrats in Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin over the weekend with plans to head to Nevada and Arizona, as well as Pennsylvania later this week alongside President Joe Biden. I'm going to be spending the rest of the time making the case that this is not a referendum. It's a choice, a fundamental choice, a choice between two very different visions for the country. Former President Donald Trump is also hitting the trail with stops planned in Iowa, Pennsylvania, Florida and Ohio in the closing stretch. Go out and vote up and down the slate. Vote for Republicans. Good, great Republicans. Meantime, millions of voters have already voted early as candidates take part in final debates. On Sunday night in Georgia, Republican Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams debated a number of key issues. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of the state. We have the most people ever working in the history of our state. And we're seeing economic opportunity in all parts of our state. In this Georgia, right now, people are feeling economic pain. And unfortunately, under this governor, the pain is only getting worse. Now, here in Pennsylvania, this is an open Senate seat. Pat Toomey, a Republican, is retiring. It's getting a ton of attention and could very well determine the outcome of who holds power in the Senate. And to that end, Brianna, we have seen President Biden here once over the last two weeks. He's come both weeks. Uh, He's coming back this weekend uh, with former President Barack Obama. And you heard in my story there, former President Trump also paying a visit to Pennsylvania. It really comes down to Pennsylvania. So much attention here and a bit of a proxy war, really, between Trump and Biden, a redo of 2020 in a way. Brianna? Yeah, a huge fight there in Pennsylvania. Jessica Dean, live for us in Philadelphia. Thank you so much. Let's discuss this now. Let's talk about that Republican optimism. And Aisha, I wonder what you think, because there are these new New York Times final polls of the cycle numbers out. 
And there's fairly good news for Democrats. They have them slightly ahead or tied in all four of the top Senate battleground states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. But I suspect that Republican internal polling shows something a lot different than what the Times is showing. You know, I think that they may be looking at polls like that and thinking that they're overshooting for the left, as they have done in the past, the enthusiasm and the people that are going to come out. And, you know, frankly, the odds are in Republicans' favors. The environment is about as good as it can get, right? You got horrible inflation. You got a, a, a president that's not very popular. And he's being dragged down by, you know, bad ratings. And so they can get out there and they can make hay of it. And they have like they've done it with crime. They've done it with inflation. And they've been very effective at that. Do they have any reason to not be so optimistic? No. And Brianna, I say this, (laughs) you know this. I think my former political party is a direct threat to our democracy. But they're sitting pretty right now. They've been relentless. Inflation, crime, the border. Inflation, crime, the border. The Democrats still seem to be searching and struggling for a message. A lot of that isn't their fault. But Republicans have been relentless. Inflation, crime, the border. I want to circle crime um, because I just before I came on was looking at Gallup polling and the economy is still the issue that is driving most people say that's the most important factor. But second is crime. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, in June, Gallup didn't even ask about crime. That's which speaks to it's sort of the dark horse issue. And now. Look, Republicans look very Republican strategists look very smart. They have been spending tens of millions of dollars on ads on crime for months now. Uh, defund the police, ending cash bail. I was watching the Georgia set, uh, governor debate last night. I know I'm a little nerdy. I was watching Georgia governor debate, and Brian Kemp used that against Stacey Abrams in a in a governor's race, right? Which is a little odd, but um, that issue. Uh, People are worried. P- local crime, people are more concerned about local crime than they've been in 50 years of it Gallup matters. polling. And I-, I just think we talk about the economy. The economy matters. Abortion clearly matters for the Democratic base. You know, I'm not trying to discount that. But circle crime and notice how many crime ads are being run uh, in your local congressional district, Senate race, governor's race. I think that's really important. Fear works. I mean, have Democrats done enough to well, combat that? No, I think they've been very, they've been caught flat-footed on the crime issue because the, the crime issue isn't something that's just happening in Democratic states. In fact, it's happening in Republican states. It's happening at very high rates. Yeah. And Democrats have a pretty good record on, on crime, and yet they're not talking about it. And they, it's in the same way, there's a lot of people in this country who believe the Democratic Party supported defund the police, and they didn't, yep. right? And they just don't do a good enough job of explaining what they believe, in part because they have a base that you know has opinions that actually does support defund the police or has differing opinions. So they're kind of trying to walk this line. But I do think that they should have been more aggressive about it because it is something that is it, a lot of people are very concerned about. It's a and, bad issue yeah. for them. And Chris, you're right. Demagogues, demo, I mean, Republicans yeah. demagogue this issue. And, and, and we should be clear that when you, this is an old playbook, law yeah. and yes. order has been around for yes. a very long time. And we can't pull race out of that as well. It is a very effective way to talk about race in a way to say, look, be worried about black and brown people and crime, and they have not been subtle in using that sort of language and ads to drive that yep. point do you, home. Do you all think the Obama effect is too late at this point or not? He, so he's clearly the most effective messenger for the broadest swath of who Democrats are trying to reach. There's a reason that Joe Biden is doing some stuff, but he's doing it with Barack Obama, or he's, you know, he's speaking from Delaware where he voted. Um, I think that 
Obama remains the best messenger for the Democratic Party, the clearest, most effective messenger that's been true now for you know more than a decade. I'm with the congressman a little bit. I, I, I wonder if it's too little too late. I, you know, by this time, you know, we're eight days out from the election. A lot of minds are made up. Uh, you know, and Democrats are pushing back on crime. Yeah. They spent they spent fifty eight million dollars since October first on ads on crime. So they're not they're not ignoring it. I just wonder if the cake is is it, it, mostly baked. And Brianna, Obama's been on fire. I mean, th- his talks over the weekend, but it kind of shows the fact that there haven't been any other Democrats who've yeah. been able to speak with that fire. Yeah, but I do I do think sort of to what we started started talking about here is that. The Democrats actually are doing better than you would expect, considering mm-hmm. the climate, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the fact that you that anybody's even saying it's possible that they could hold on to right. the Senate, right? Now we don't really know because we don't know if the polls are oversampling Democrats or whatever. But if if the polls are accurate, then they're doing they're doing pretty well because the fact of the matter is, under historical circumstances, they should be expected to lose. And then you add in everything else that's going wrong, adding in inflation, adding in the fact that Biden is not popular. Um, you know, the, the expectation should be that they're going to yep. lose. Democrats need to be pulling conservatives like you, Joe. Yeah. They do. They need to be pulling folks who are disaffected with the Republican Party. Are they doing that? No, they haven't done that. Look, uh, Republicans, I I talk to low information voters in the middle, moderates and conservatives like me, who know Republicans are jerks, but they don't feel like they do. They tell me that they use stronger language. They tell me that every day, Brianna, but they don't feel like Democrats talk to them at all. I hear that over and over. What do Democrats, Aisha, say about that? Do Do they have an idea of how they should be approaching how, this and it's also should, pretty late yeah i mean I, I think it is pretty late i mean i think this is why you do see you know the, the president and others they want to say like look you know we care talking about bringing prices down things mm-hmm. of that nature like they want to say we we feel your pain we do care about you and then they also want to say we love the police and things of that yeah. nature because they're trying to reach out but this this country is so polarized when we have people out on the trail talking to people i mean they're saying things like the other side needs to be destroyed yeah. and then we'll yes. figure it all out i mean the polarization in this country is you know off the charts mm-hmm. i, I want to ask you finally chris so yeah. on this brutal attack on paul pelosi and we have some new details here yes you have republicans mitch mcconnell Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, uh, they're condemning the attack, Rick Scott. But then take a look at this. This is Donald Trump Jr. elevating a crude meme, which we're showing you because I think it's important that you see what it is, right? This is obviously the opposite of condemning the assault. And we're also seeing conservatives share wild conspiracy theories. You have Congressman Clay Higgins saying the attacker was a lover of Paul Pelosi's. (laughs) Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin joked about it. Uh, He was planning, of course, we know now, this attacker, this alleged attacker, he confessed, according to police, to wanting to break the kneecaps of the speaker. I mean, at some point, do Republicans have to change some of these Republicans I, change their tune? So, so, you know, you could go broke predicting the, the, the bottom. You know, I mean, honestly, like when I saw I woke up this morning, this is a really pleasant thing to wake up to. I woke up this morning. And the first thing that was in my feed was that Donald Trump Jr. costume joke. You know, Donald Trump Jr. is a supercharged version of Donald Trump. What worries me is not that Donald Trump Jr. said and did something that's like, you know, deeply deplorable. I know that's a word he loves and embraces, but I, it's deplorable. What worries me is that that post had thousands of likes on it. That, that, that to me is the more concerning piece here. 
it's not just one person, the former, the, the eldest son of the former president, it's not just one person saying and doing something that, like, it's Halloween, we'll talk about our kids, that, you know, if our kids said and did something like that, we would punish them, right? I mean, that's just unacceptable behavior. It's, yeah. that is a, I don't want to say a winning message, but an acceptable message to lots of people. Just think about that. An 82-year-old man was attacked with a hammer. He had a broken, uh, a fractured skull and had to undergo emergency surgery because someone broke into his house at 2.30 in the morning with a vendetta against the Speaker of the House. We can't, we can't ignore it and we can't accept it. Yeah, and normalize even, it. Even if we aren't surprised by it That's at right. this point in time. Thank you all Thanks. for the conversation this evening. We appreciate it. Next, what seems to be Russia's preferred targets in Ukraine right now and new signs that the attacks are working. Topping our world lead, CNN is learning more about two Americans who are among the 155 people killed in South Korea on Saturday. Many crushed to death as crowds packed a narrow alley during a Halloween celebration. And as CNN's Paula Hancox reports, South Korean officials admit there were no guidelines to handle the throngs of young people. A once thriving nightlife hub, now the site of endless grief and loss. South Korea is in a period of national mourning. For the more than 150 lives lost in a crowd surge on Saturday. There was just obviously waves of people coming in. This yeah. is like the middle of Gitaewon. Yeah. So waves are coming in from both yeah. sides. And more people fell. And then I lost my friend. And there's so many people. What are you going to do with 10 people? Yeah. And I had to like turn around and I told the crowd, you can't come this way. People are dying. South Korean officials now admitting there were no guidelines for dealing with the Halloween festivities in Seoul that took a deadly turn. An event without an organizer was actually an unprecedented situation. There is no separate preparation manual for a situation where there is no organizer and where a crowd is expected. Survivors who managed to escape recount the horror. It was about, like, you know, you versus other people that I just... Let, let's go to the White House, where President Biden is rolling out a plan on oil companies to address record profits. They're down more than $1.20 since their peak this summer, and they've been falling for the best, uh, best part of the last three weeks. In June, the average price, not the most common price, but the average price nationwide was, uh, was over $5 a gallon. Today, the average price for a gallon of gas is $3.76. That's adding up to real savings for American families, the difference between those prices. And this difference uh, makes a difference. In a difficult time, Americans across the country have stepped up and to do the right thing. But not everyone stepped up. The oil industry has not. It has not met its commitment to invest in America and support the American people. One by one, major oil companies have reported record profits. Not just a fair return on for hard work. Every company's entitled to that, a fair return for the work they do or innovation they generate. It means, but I mean profits so high it's hard to believe. Now, the second quarter, the profits were really high, but the third quarter, last week, Shell announced that it made $9.5 billion in profits for the third quarter. $9.5 billion. That's almost twice as much as it made in the third quarter of last year. I think that's something. 
You think that's incredible? I thought, my, that's as good as high as it's going to get. Then along came Exxon. Exxon's profits for the third quarter were $18.7 billion. One quarter, $18.7 billion. Nearly triple what Exxon made last year. And the most in its 152-year history. It's never made that much profit. In the last six months, six of the largest oil companies have made more than $100 billion. $100 billion. And we had a little discussion about this, the three of us and others. $100 billion in profits in two, less than 200 days. That's not bad. And, and here's, why this, here's why this matters. I think it's outrageous what the, the, the size of the profit. Here's why it matters. These companies were making average profits they've been making by refining oil over the last 20 years instead of the outrageous profits they're making today. And if they passed the rest on to the consumers, the price of gas would come down around an additional 50 cents. If they're investing their profits in historic, at historic rates in their U.S. operations, then America would be producing more oil today and prices would be down even further. But rather than increasing their investments in America or giving American consumers a break, their excess profits are going back to their shareholders and they're buying back their stocks so the executive pays are going to skyrocket. Give me a break. Enough is enough. Look, I'm a capitalist. You've heard me say this before. I have no problem with corporations turning a fair profit or getting a return on their investment in innovation. But this is remotely what's happening. Oil companies, record profits today, are not because they're doing something new or innovative. Their profits are a windfall of war, the windfall from the brutal conflict that's ravaging Ukraine and hurting tens of millions of people around the globe. You know, at a time of war, any company receiving historic windfall profits like this has a responsibility to act beyond their narrow self-interest of its executives and shareholders. I think they have a responsibility to act in the interest of their consumers, their community, and their country. To invest in America by increasing production and refining capacity, because they've ha they don't want to do that. They, they have the opportunity to do that. Lowering prices for consumers at the pump. You know, if they don't, they're going to pay a higher tax on their excess profits and face other re restrictions. My team will work with Congress to look at these, op these options that are available to us and others. It's time for these companies to stop war profiteering, meet their responsibilities to this country, and give the American people a break and still do very well. The American people are going to judge who's standing with them and who is only looking out for their own bottom line. I know where I stand, and I want to let you, I'm, you hear more from me about this when the Congress gets back. Thank you all very, very much. Appreciate it. Mr. President, how do you feel about the midterm elections? With one right, President Biden there speaking from the Roosevelt Room at the White House, repeating a call for U.S. oil companies to invest some of their record profits into increased production. Uh, the goal there would be to lower gas prices that Americans have been impacted by for months. Of course, it would require congressional action. Uh, let's listen in. He's talking. Dealing with the poorest country and saving the Amazon. Are you inviting to the White House? All right, let's bring in CNN's MJ Lee and Allison Kosick. Allison, first to you. Uh, the president wants to make sure Americans know just how much these companies are making while they see how much they're paying at the pump. 
Yeah, you're right about that, Brianna. So President Biden is trying to solidify this message just, just days before Americans go to the polls to vote in the midterms. But this isn't a new rallying cry from the president. He's actually been saying oil and gas companies are raking in record profits on the backs of consumers who are already paying uh, more for just about everything because of historic inflation. He's been saying that for a while, but now he's got a captive audience because there are these new numbers, as you can see there on the screen. ExxonMobil's latest profit set a record for the second quarter in a row with the company earning $18.7 billion. That's a B. Exxon's profit is up 177% from a year ago. Chevron, which is the second biggest oil company in the U.S., also bringing in a huge amount of money in the third quarter, bringing in earnings of $10.8 billion. It's almost double what uh, the $5.7 billion that it made a year ago. Here's another way to look at the profits just to sort of hit, you know, send this home for you. ExxonMobil earned, get this, $2,350 every second of every day of the 92-day quarter. Chevron earned $1,357 every second of every day of the quarter. Chew on that for a minute. I think that's what Biden is saying here. Yeah, and certainly, and, and MJ, in a way, he's sort of saying, look, it's not my fault. It's not my party's fault. And he's saying it just before the midterm elections in these remarks that actually weren't on the president's original schedule today. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this was an event that was added at the last minute to the White House schedule. Uh, listen, Brianna, when uh, the White House has been grappling with the overall issue of high gas prices, this particular issue of oil companies turning big profits is one that the president has returned to over and over again. And you heard sort of the exasperation in his speech just now when he said, give me a break. Enough is enough. Uh, the idea is basically that, look, the American people are hurting right now. Prices all across the board are too high. So these record uh, breaking profits that these, these oil companies and energy companies are getting to make, uh, he said there's a responsibility for them to turn that around and direct that so that consumers can benefit and so that there can be the overall effect of lowering prices. Uh, but I think it's really important what you pointed out, Brianna, uh, that some of these actions that he's talking about, uh, taxing uh, sort of the profits or other restrictions that what the White House might be considering, uh, these are ideas ideas that require congressional action. And there's just not sort of a pathway, a realistic political pathway uh, for that to happen. But I think all of this is such a reminder that obviously, as we head into the final stretch before the midterms, yes, inflation and particularly high gas prices, uh, those issues are very much top of mind for the president right now. Yeah, and he's trying to push back on them as they are a difficult issue for Democrats. MJ Allison, thank you so much to both of you. Next, the Supreme Court case challenging affirmative action. Hear what justices said as they heard arguments. A big question before the Supreme Court today, should race factor into college admissions decisions? The justices heard arguments in two major affirmative action cases involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Chief Justice John Roberts has a well-known skepticism toward the policy, which leaves the liberal justices in an unmistakable minority. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic is with us now on this story. Joan, what are the liberal justices saying could happen if affirmative action is gutted. Sure, Brianna, and I'm glad I started the morning with you because after I left here, I went to the courtroom for five hours of arguments and there was so much tension between the right and the left because the right has a majority right now. So the three liberal justices tried to point up just what would happen on college campuses if 
Harvard and the University of North Carolina were not allowed to look at applicants' race. And let's start with the first excerpt from Justice Elena Kagan talking to lawyer Patrick Strawbridge about what will happen if universities cannot use these measures. In your view, it really wouldn't matter if there was a precipitous decline in minority admissions, African-American, Hispanic, one or the other. Suppose that it just fell through the floor. Would it just, you know, too bad? Well, I don't think that it's going to fall through the floor if the university is actually committed to the broader diversity at once. I guess what I'm saying is your brief, and this is very explicit in your brief, is like it just doesn't matter if our institutions look like America. Um, You say this on page 11 in your reply brief. And I guess what I'm asking you is, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it? You know, that's a real concern on the part of the the liberal justices, but we're going to listen to one from Chief Justice John Roberts that I think is really much more the tone, Brianna. And the feeling from conservatives is, no matter what the reason, even if it's a beneficial reason to take race into account for diversity, let's listen to what he has to say. I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. You're always going to have to look at race because you say race matters to give us the necessary diversity. You know, this is his issue. Is this going to go on forever? And he and his colleagues again on the right kept pointing to a 2003 decision in which Justice O'Connor said using racial affirmative action was good, but happened to say perhaps this will be done in 25 years. And they kept saying, we want it done now. We, it, it, you, you heard his sentiment. The conservatives think it's just gone on too long, the use of race in admissions. I think we know which way the court yes. is going on this one, unless there is some big surprise. Joan, thank you so much and for being in the court today so you could bring this sure. to us. We appreciate it. Joan Biskupic. And this note, CNN's Jake Tapper will dive into this case. Hear from an attorney representing the University of North Carolina students defending the program. That is on CNN tonight at 9 Eastern right here on CNN. And next here on The Lead, where Americans say their water bills are up 1,000 percent, and that spike could have a ripple effect on your wallet. Plus, what Instagram is saying about its brief outage today and the odd message that popped up for thousands of users. In our Earth Matters series, the government's latest map shows much of the country experiencing everything from abnormally dry conditions, that is the yellow you see, to exceptional drought like the dark red covering much of California. If all of this isn't depressing enough, CNN's Renee Marsh has a warning that water prices are going up, perhaps more than they should. Miles of brittle, uprooted almond trees lay flat across dry farmland in Coalinga, California. Drought, tightening water restrictions, and now skyrocketing water prices have forced farmers to sacrifice their crops. This is what a thirsty city on the verge of running out of water looks like. 
we can't continue this. It's not sustainable for our community. City Councilman Adam Adkisson says Koalinga was set to run out of water by mid to late November and had to turn to the open market to buy water to make up the shortfall. The city was short about 600 acre feet of water. That's the equivalent of about 300 Olympic-sized pools. Last week, Koalinga finalized the water purchase from a California public irrigation district. The price tag for one of life's most basic necessities? Roughly Roughly $1.1 million. Adkisson says the same amount of water used to cost the city $114,000. I was just floored. I could not believe that they could sell water at that price, but um, that was actually a cheap rate. That's the cheapest rate we found. The index that tracks water transactions in California shows the price of water has gone from just over $200 in 2019 to more than $1,000 today for the amount of water it would take to fill half of an Olympic-sized pool. People are making money off of less water availability, and that's hurting real people, real farmers, and real communities. Hi, everybody. California State Senator Melissa Hurtado and a bipartisan group of California legislators in a letter sent this August urged the U.S. Justice Department to investigate, quote, potential drought profiteering. Hurtado suspects there could be water price gouging in drought-stricken western states. I'm not a farmer, and this keeps me up at night. CNN was there as Hurtado met with a living room full of farmers raising alarm about high water prices. How can we work out a plan? where it's not going to bankrupt us. Dee Dee Gruber and her husband Tom grow 11 different crops. They estimate the water needed to grow one of their crops, walnuts, will cost $40,000. It would have cost us more in water than what we what we're going to get for our walnuts. The Justice Department, in an email to Hurtado this month, said her complaint was forwarded to the appropriate legal staff for further review. The agency declined comment to CNN on what, if any, investigative actions it might take as this dwindling resource becomes more expensive to come by. We're a very poor community. These people out here cannot afford a thousand percent increase in their water bills. Well, the city of Koalinga announced today that California approved a grant to help offset its million-dollar water bill. But the larger problem prevails here, and that's the $1 million price tag for a relatively small amount of water. And we should note, Brianna, this grant will not cover the cost for farmers and the water that they pay for. And farmers that we spoke to tell us that these high water prices in the state will drive food prices nationwide even higher. Yeah. It's a nightmare for growers and for us as well when it comes to our grocery bills. Renee, thank you for that excellent report. Sure. In our tech lead, Instagram is apologizing for an outage today that affected thousands of users. The New York Times reports many Instagram users received notifications this morning that their accounts had been suspended for violating community guidelines. According to the tracking site Down Detector, Complaints tapered off late this morning, but it recorded some 7,000 people reporting they couldn't access their accounts. Instagram sent a tweet confirming it's looking into the issue, but did not respond to CNN's request for comment. We are close to a new era for morning television. You can catch Don Lemon, Poppy Harlow, and Caitlin Collins on CNN this morning, tomorrow at 6 a.m. sharp. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.